0: all awake? It's a great opening song. Yes, thank you. Hey, there's a a pretty well-known story, uh, even if you haven't referenced it in a while. 2 Chronicles 20 uh, tells a story in the life of good King Jehoshaphat, um, one of the southern kingdoms, Judah's uh, sterling kings. But the situation was the uh, the tribes to the east of Judah had... uh, coalesce together to come against Judah and so good king Jehoshaphat gets word and he knows based on numbers or something else that the group that's coming in the Ammonites the Moabites and the Edomites that are coming in are far too either numerous in number far too well fortified their army that Judah doesn't stand a chance against them. And so he calls for a fast, and Judah gathers together. They humble themselves before the Lord. They fast, they pray. And in that context, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, God speaks through one of the prophets, and he says, I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to take care of this for you. So he tells them exactly where the opposing armies are going to come in. So Judah goes down, the army goes down, but, but this was the thing. Uh, God says, I'm going to take care of the battle. Uh, the battle's not yours the battle's mine that's one of the phrases that comes out of that story and the other is uh, Josiah says Lord we don't know what to do but our eyes are on you Uh, that's a memory verse that lots of you have had we don't know what to do but our eyes are on you well God tells them what to do so as they organize to go down and meet that army that's going to come in to devastate them uh, Jehoshaphat has uh Bill Billen and the worship team go up front. (laughs) He has the praise team go in front of the army. If you're a strategist, this doesn't sound to make much sense, does it? The army's not in front to engage the other army. The group that's going to lead in the singing goes up front. They're leading the charge, if you will. Their battle cry was, in fact, a song of praise and they go forward and they they sing this give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever give thanks to the Lord his steadfast love endures forever and then in the story itself it says that as they sang as they praised God routed the enemy army so that by the time they get there and see the enemy to engage the enemy Like some other stories, God has turned the enemy armies upon themselves and they're all dead. And so rather than a battle to face, they've got three days worth of stripping the dead and the armies of the wealth that they had brought with them. So they go forward to meet the challenge, to meet the trial with full confidence. And they do so praising God because God's told them, I've got this. You're not going to win this battle It's not like that. I've got it. I'm going to take care of it. And so they're praising before their prayer has been answered, before they know what God's going to do. They're praising. And as they praise, God takes care of that problem. When you and I are facing a problem, a challenge, what would it take for us to do what they did, which is to praise God before he's answered our prayer? What would it take for us to praise God in the midst of trial and challenge? We've got something that's on our plate. We're asking God to engage on our behalf, but we haven't seen it happen yet. We haven't seen the answer. What does it take for us to be praising God in the midst of that thing anyway? What would that look like for us? We're in Psalm 71 this morning And it is a cry for help. It's a great song. Uh, But one of the things you see is that the psalmist's life is defined by praise. And guys, if we say praise or we say worship, there may be a formality to that. If you said in your mind something like this, that my life is characterized by thanks. Uh, I'm thankful. I'm thankful to God every day. And I hope you are. And I am every day. Uh, Salvation humbles us, doesn't it? And when you remember, uh, when I get up in the morning or I see my own sin, and I realize again uh, to Larry's introduction, our sins, past, present, and future, are all covered by the blood of the Lamb. I don't answer my, for my sins. Jesus did. We are God's children. And he's not only with us in the moment, but we have eternity with pleasures and joys that go on forever in his presence. Guys, any day for a Christian is a good day. So if praise or worship isn't the term that's helpful for us, what about just thanksgiving? That that day in and day out, I'm characterized by being thankful to God for who He is and what He's done and what He's done for me. So what does it take for you and I to have a life that looks like it's characterized by thanksgiving? You could also say things like it's characterized by joy, it's characterized by praise, it's characterized by that understanding of my life whether it's good in the moment or bad that God is good and God's in control and and whatever's going on I trust him and I turn to give him thanks or praise or worship you fill in the the word that would be most helpful or meaningful for you what does that look like Psalm 71 is um, it's a very specific song for this reason so lots and lots of the songs talk about challenges in life right we're calling out to God for help That's a very common theme. It's the psalmist that's unique in this song. So this applies more specifically to some of you than to others. Okay, this song is specifically applying to some of you more than it is to others. So this unnamed psalmist is in the fall or the winter of his life. So his hair is white. Do anybody here with white hair? A few of you. Some would be white, right? Apart from what we use in the bathroom. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're there. So the, the, the unnamed author of this song, he's in the, the later years of his life, more years behind than in front. And, and he's facing challenges in the moment. And, and you know, as we get older, as we age, our resources tend to diminish, our physical strength, maybe mental acuity... So he's facing trouble, and he's doing so in the later period, later stages of his life. He's in trouble in the moment, but also he's got a lifetime of relationship with God in good times and bad, challenging times and otherwise. And what you find is his life is characterized by praise. Characterized by praise. So when this trouble comes up at a stage of life in which he'd really probably like to just be able to rest, he can't but he praises God in the midst of the challenge of what's going on because of what he's been doing all along. And it's because he's been in a relationship with God all along and he's seen God deliver all along. Alan Ross's summary <coughs> excuse me, is this. Anticipating the same marvelous response that the Lord has manifested to him all his life and vowing to give praise as he has done from his youth, An aging believer confidently petitions the Lord to be delivered from those who seek to harm him and deride his faith. We're going to treat this a little different than I have most of the other Psalms. We're going to read the whole thing. And we're just going to go back and we're going to pick up several of the key themes. So if you've got your Bible or your app open, this is Psalm 71. Excuse me. In you, O Lord, God's proper name, covenant name, personal name, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked. From the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For you, O Lord, are my hope. My trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have been seen as a portent. Or a sign or a symbol to many. This could mean looking back and I've, I've faced lots of challenges in life and people know that about me. Or he might be saying positively, God, others have seen God deliver me oftentimes. That might be, but he's been a symbol and a sign to others. He has a reputation among others that others see in his life. He says, But you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed. With scorn and disgrace may they be covered who seek my hurt, but I will continually hope and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day. For their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O holy one of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. My soul also, which you have redeemed. And my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long for they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. So semi-long song and with some great, great key themes the first one, like David this unnamed psalmist knew that when troubles came he knew the, the place, or we would say the person to go to, and in fact we know this guy read his Bible because the opening verses are from Psalm 31 so this isn't a psalm of David it's from someone after David that had read or sung perhaps david's song so the opening of this is straight out of psalm 31 verses 1 through 3 now here's a spoiler for you the fact that so many of the psalms are psalms where the psalmist david or otherwise is calling out to god for help should be a cue to us should it not about what we should expect in life guys do you know that we should expect trouble in life Do we know that trials and struggles are part of life on planet Earth? And it's not just because we're Christians. Now, we know in the New Testament, Jesus tells us, you know, life's tough, but if you're mine, you're going to have additional persecution and troubles because of me. If they persecuted me, you'll be persecuted too. So Christians have more, but everybody's got troubles. And this song is a reminder that when trouble strikes, we know who to go to. We, we pour that request out to God just as Jehoshaphat had. They prayed, they fasted, they humbled themselves before God because there was something they knew they couldn't take care of. And so they prayed. And that's exactly what the psalmist is doing here. Again, we're, we're slim on the specifics about what his troubles are. We know that there are multiple people conspired against him But what the specifics are, we don't know. But guys, this is trouble again. You know, in one of the verses he said, uh, um, uh, verse 20, it's troubles and calamities have been part of my life. If you live the most blessed life, the most trouble-free life on planet Earth, you will still face struggles, trials, you name it, it's going to happen. You just can't live on planet Earth apart from that. He says in verse 4, rescue me from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel. These are people who are intentionally trying to take him down out of hatred or malice. This isn't he's done something wrong. Uh, Verses 10 and 11, enemies and actually verse 13 as well. these, These people have conspired to collectively take him down by verbally saying things about him. So it's a conspiracy of what's being said. And guys, if you think of this in the age with social media that we live in today, you know, anybody can be a target for anyone in any group. And you know, all you have to do is put it out there and it never goes away. Uh, This thing would apply to us today in spades. Or even you may find, I've done the right thing, Lord. I know I've done the right thing, maybe not perfectly. And people are still speaking ill of me. And that's just life. And that's part of what's going on at this phase in his life. Others have conspired together to bring him down. And then verse 20, troubles and calamities. It just feels like here it comes again. In fact, I loved, you remember in Psalm 69, the opening, it was was a cry for help. But it was, uh, what does my suffering feel like? Well, it feels like I'm drowning. Uh, What does my suffering feel like? It feels like I'm in quicksand and I'm sinking and I can't stop. Well, here the psalmist says it feels like I'm buried alive under the earth and I need God to basically open the ground, give me a a type of resurrection, if you will. I I am buried. I'm buried in all the negative things people are saying about me and I can't fix that. I need God to pull me up, as it were, out of the ground. Whatever the particulars, the psalmist needs God help. To avoid or to fix this challenge he's in now now in response he calls out to God for help now I'm just running through some of what he said he said Lord you're my refuge keep me from shame deliver me rescue me hear my prayer save me rescue me you're my hope I trust in you don't forsake me now in old age have you found that when you're really hurting prayer gets really specific and it's really narrow and it's not hard to do help Lord help me Lord, save me. I don't say deliver. Usually it's, Lord, help me. Uh, I was in a nursing home years ago. Uh, I've never forgotten. You know, some things they imprint. That, that for you, in the moment, they're so significant. Well, I was in a nursing home. It was at night, so it was generally very quiet. There's hardly any traffic. Halls are empty. And I'm assuming the patient I heard was probably restrained because the voice never moved and it never changed. It just kept saying the same thing. And here's an elderly gentleman and he just kept saying, somebody help me. Then there'd be a pause. Somebody help me. That's all he said. Repeated over and over and over again. Well, that's what the psalmist is saying. Only he knows who can help him. And so when trouble comes in, he knew where to go. He knew what to do. And we should too. And guys, it doesn't matter. Sometimes we'll say, I've prayed and God hasn't answered. Well, that's actually this song too. If we say, I've prayed but God hasn't answered, we could could append to the end of that yet. I haven't seen God's answer yet. The psalmist hadn't seen the answer yet, and he was praising God. Jehoshaphat's crew hadn't seen God's answer yet, and they were praising God. They'd gone to God in prayer, and they were praising Him, knowing He would do something on their behalf. We're always careful on these psalms, and when we talk about this, we do not oversell. So God's answer to you may be you die and go to heaven, and that's a good thing for a Christian. God's answer to some of our prayers may be we die. That's a good thing because for the Christian, death has no sting. It's We're in Christ's presence. You know what I'm saying? We're under the new covenant. We're a persecuted group. We are aliens in an alien world. We are ambassadors of a foreign country. This is not our home. So sometimes God's answers are provision in the moment, physical, material provision in the moment, deliverance. Sometimes they are not. It's not that God doesn't answer our prayer, right? God's always in the moment. He's in it with us. So his answers may vary. What that looks like may vary. So we're holding that loosely. But we're going to God with our challenges. We're laying them out before him humbly. And we're saying, Lord, not somebody, not anybody. We're saying, Lord, help me. I'm in a place. I can't help myself. I need you to help me. Um, One of the things I absolutely love about this psalm is uh, the sense of perspective that this elderly saint has. So, According to the psalmist, how long had God been taking care of him? According to this psalmist, how long had God been taking care of him? So, verse 6, he says, now the the translation uh, it's ESV says, Upon you I have leaned uh, from before my birth. Don't picture a baby with his elbow on mom's tummy leaning on God. That's not, it's supported. Uh, so Lord even before I was born you were supporting me you were upholding me you were caring for me your loving care was there for me when I was in my mother's womb in fact he says you are he who took me from my mother's womb so when did God's care for this guy begin well long before he had consciousness long before he had memory he said from way back then in the womb And at my birth, you're the one who was caring for me even then. From before I was conscious, before I could know God, or love God, or care about God, he was supporting me and caring for me. It's similar in Psalm 22, 9. You took me from the womb and made me trust while still at my mother's breast. Guys, this is saying God was there... Caring for us when we had no knowledge of God. We weren't nice babies. We weren't good toddlers. You, you know what I'm saying? This has nothing to do with the. the he'd earn God's favor. Before I could do anything, before I knew right or wrong, God was with me, supporting me, keeping me, caring for me. Now, <clears throat> when did God start loving us and caring for us? Now, that, what the psalmist said is profound. On time, he says, God's care for me went back before I had memory or could interact with God. Psalm 139 is somewhat similar. God was with us in the womb, knitting us together. You know, Psalm 139 is one of those great psalms that talks about God's care for us from the beginning, putting us together. It says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none. Before I was born, before I could count on the calendar to my next birthday, he says God was with me. God was putting me together. God was caring for me and supporting me. Now it gets more profound than that. Go to the New Testament, Ephesians 1. God has blessed us, Christians, those in Christ. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We're co heirs with Christ. Whatever Jesus gets, we get. Even as he chose us in him, God chose us in Christ when, at birth, in the womb, nope, not far enough back, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, sons and daughters. We're good, as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. So, how long has the love of God and His care been set on us? Before our birth, while our unseen body was formed in the womb, before our conception, friends, before this world was created, you were in God's mind, and God had said, my love is on this person is on him, is on her, before we existed. God said, I've set my love on them. God has chosen to love us in Christ, not based on any good we had done. This comes up, by the way, in Romans 9. But simply from the abundance of his grace and love. We didn't earn God's love, friends. God didn't set his love on you because he knew what a lovely person you would become. He set his love on you before you'd done anything good or bad. So, how long has God's love been on us in the past? psalmist says from the womb. Paul says in Ephesians 1, from eternity past, God's love has been set on us. The psalmist's hope in God's love and care extends to the end of his life. So he looks back and he says, God, your, your care, your loving support has been there for me from before memory, from before birth. And he says, and it goes right on to the end of my life. Verse 9 When the psalmist is in his old age, and that's the picture you need, this is an old fella that's writing. This is somebody with gray hair and wrinkled skin, okay? He's been there, he's done that. He's old age, he lacks the strength of his younger years, and he's still trusting God. Verse 17, he says, from my youth, God taught me. Now friends, when he says this, it's past tense. I was young. That's a long time ago. I'm not young now. I'm speaking as an old man looking back on the days of my youth. Verse 18. When most of the years of his life are spent and his hair is gray, his hope is God. So God was with me before I had memory. God is, and by the way, God will be with me perhaps when memory has gone again. For some of us as we age. So before I had memory on the front end, God was with me. And maybe for some of us before I... I, after I lose my memory on the back end. God will be with me there in the future. Psalm 37.5 says something similar to this. David said, I have been young. Just like the psalmist, I was young. I have been young, but now I am old. So I've been young, I'm old, so I've, I've got history. I can look back, and he says, and this is what I found uh, sorry, this is one of my memory verses, but I've lost my place. Yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken. God never forsakes the righteous. And I've never seen the children of the righteous begging bread. I've never seen God not provide for the righteous and their children. It hadn't happened. I was young. I'm not now. Now I'm old. But this is what I've seen in life. God's keeping, supporting, loving care from before birth to the end of life. Physical strength may fade, mental sharpness may dull, but God remains the psalmist's hope and confidence. How long can you and I count on God's love for us? So the psalmist says, before memory to the end of life, the gray years, Romans 8, 38, and 39 take in a lot more than time, but they do take in time as well, these These uh, verses, what can separate us, Paul's question there, is what can separate you and me in Christ from the love of God? Now, he goes through a list, but he includes not things present and not things to come. Nothing in your life in the moment and nothing to come in your life in the future can separate you from the love of God in Christ. In that sense, we could say it's timeless. So the psalmist is in his graying years and he says, I'm still trusting God and God's still providing for me. And Paul has told us that old age, time in the present and nothing in the future can separate us from the love of God in Christ. When troubles present, it's a great thing to remind ourselves, I live in the eternal love of God in Christ. In youth and old age and every other stage of life, God has set his love on me in Christ, and Christ is enough. That's the promise we have. Christ is the promise. We live, we breathe, we age in the eternal love and keeping care of God in Christ. Now, this guy's old. He's like some of us. he's, He's in the tail end, right? He's old. Just think of him old, whatever that looks like in your mind. He's old. But notice this. He has a motivation for living that stood him in good stead and would stand us in good stead as well. He has a reason to get up in the morning. He has a cause that he's still living for. In fact, part of his prayer is motivated because of what he feels his unfinished work on the earth is. He's basically telling God, Lord, would you deliver me? perhaps not for the sole reason, but significantly for this reason, verses 17 and 18, he says, I still proclaim your wondrous deeds even to old age and gray hair, and this is the phrase, until I proclaim your might and power to another generation, to those still to come. Now think about that. This is an old man. He's lived life. I assume he's been faithful throughout. He's, because that's, he's praised God all his life. And he still says, Lord, I want you to leave me hanging around now because I don't feel I've given due diligence. I haven't finished the job of communicating who you are, your goodness, your greatness, your praiseworthiness, to the next generation. So part of what he's saying is, Lord, I want you to answer my prayer and take care of my enemies so I can get on with the business of making sure those who come behind know you. That's the reason to get up in the morning. And I'm sure this isn't his only motivation, but it's a specific one that he puts in the song. He wants to live long enough that he shared with following generations God's reality. So here's a question for you. We've got, you know, We've got a pretty good mix in the church demographically. We've got tons of babies, right? And you come right on up, we've got young families. We've got a lot of people my age plus. Okay, so we've got a great mix. Excuse me. So what gets us, if we're in the retirement years of life, whatever that is for you, whatever that looks like, if we're in that age of life where we're not necessarily toiling at making a living, we don't have to get up and do a bunch of things, what motivates us to get up in the morning what motivates us to live life well, to finish the race of life well? What do I look at and say, I'm not ready to die. Now, if God takes me, that's another matter. But I'm not ready to die because there are things I'm convinced I still need to do to, to give a, a fullness to the stewardship God's entrusted to me. And you remember, when Jesus dies on the cross, he says it's finished. He fulfilled his work. When Paul says in 2 Timothy, I've run the race, past tense, I've finished the course, he knows it's time for him to die. He's done everything God wanted him to do. But if we're alive and drawing breath, it probably means God has something for us yet to do more than get up, eat, read, sleep, go to bed, and repeat. Do you know what I mean? That there's got to be more to life than our mere existence, than occupying space. So for us, As believers in Jesus who will, as stewards before Christ, give an account for the days of our life, what do we need to give an account for? What does God yet want from us? What does that look like? What does that require? Uh, Does something like the psalmist's determination fit into our desire in life? I want to go through this in stages just a little bit. If you're a parent, if you're training the next generation, if you're raising A next generation. Do you see your highest call as presenting Christ to your children? Do your children know because of your parenting that a living, faithful relationship with God is their highest good? Do they know that because you're their parents? Are you introducing, in all the ways God gives you to do, introducing your children to Christ? Do they grow up knowing there's nothing better, as far as we can communicate as parents... There's nothing better than knowing and loving and serving the Lord. Based on my influence, is that what my kids are getting? And guys, there's lots of competition on this. There's lots of competition. Lots of competition. What do your kids value and cherish because you are their parents? Are our children enthusiastic about the Lord, devoted to honoring Him because they've seen that lifestyle and those priorities in us? You know, there are many parents who will say, I took my kids to church, and when they grew up, they forsook the faith. I took my kids to church. That's not what we're talking about. You're responsible for your kids. The church isn't. The church has a subsidiary role of affirming what you as parents are meant to give your children. The church can't be their parents. It's not called to be their parents. What do they get from you? We don't take our kids to church hoping they catch it because they were there. The church is, is meant to affirm what they're getting from us at home. Do our children know Christ is desirable because of our influence? Guys, if you're not a joyful Christian, your kids probably aren't going to want what you're selling. We don't have the power to save children, but we certainly do to point them to the one who can. And this is interesting. In the qualifications for leadership in a local church, is 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, one of the requirements is, That those men who exercise leadership have children who are respectful and obedient. Okay? Now think about that for just a minute. That means it doesn't say save. Titus 1 is a little iffy depending on how the Greeks translate it. Uh, Some translations say children who believe. Probably better, children who are faithful. That means that parents have the ability to raise children who are respectful and obedient. That's what that implies. Because if the man isn't characterized by that through his children, Scripture says he's not fit to lead the church. So that's doable. We can do that. We can pass on values and ethics. We can't give new birth. But there's an awful lot we can and should be given our children related to the knowledge of Christ, the love of Christ. And they should see in our life, our example, they should see a life that they want. Christian's life has all kinds of hardships to be sure, but it should be one infused with joy that's contagious, that children, your children will want. Have we proclaimed in word and deed God's goodness to our own next generation? Now, we have lots of grand and great-grandparents in this church as well. This has been a learning curve for me. My vision didn't go further than having my own kids and raising them. And I'm a grandfather now. And, you know, God's like, Mike, hello. Do you remember uh, Back to the Future? The guy knocks on, hello. I feel like that's what God says to me. "Uh, Mike, uh, your job's not done. So your kids are raised. God bless them. They're great. They're married. And they're raising kids. And I've got to say to myself, I need to make sure that I fulfill the role God wants for me as a grandparent in the ways I can. Most of my grands don't live close. What does that look like? You know, some grands do live close. What does that look like? Uh, to be available, to be sure. But what does it look like as a, as a grandparent in Christ? What does it look like to say, Lord, in the ways that I can, I want to have that influence the psalmist is talking about. I want to declare who you are and the worth of knowing you to that next generation, to my children's next generation. What does that look like for us? Guys, we have stories I don't know, um, how am I doing on time? You know, when we were kids, yeah, that's always the problem. It's always the problem. When we were kids, uh, <clears throat> I would always want to ask my dad, who had some unique experiences, uh, you know, tell me about that. Well, my dad never wanted to. He, and some of them were quite painful, you know, so he didn't want to talk about it, which I, I understood. But we, I want to hear from my dad, you know, what was it like when you were a boy, my girl's, Used to badger me, Dad. Tell us some stories about when you were a boy. I'm not sure why it is, but you know, I I just kind of put them off. You know, it's like <laughs> I'd sing a little song, which I will not sing this morning, about my my time as a boy. Um, but kids are programmed to hear <clears throat> grandparents' stories. You know, what did that look like for you as a kid? What were you really a kid like me? You know, were you really? They'll listen. You know, what are our stories? What has that looked like? Well, that's an opportunity to do what the psalmist is saying. It's to pass on that knowledge and that desire, the desirability of knowing God, onto that next generation. We have a role in that as grandparents and beyond. Now, if you say you don't have children or you don't have children where you can have that impact today, you know, in most churches, just like Lionel Lamb, Children's Sunday School, those are next generations. And the churches always stand in need of. Of people who will simply be that affirming elbow that support to lean on on Sunday mornings of someone affirming what they're teaching at home in kids Sunday school one thing Larry I think mentioned during the announcements Doc Sodzo summer camp here late in June we need men to act as counselors for those young boys that's another opportunity I you say I'm not a father I don't have any kids around you say well there's still opportunities uh, this is Titus 2 verses 3 through 5, which I know the ladies in Lion and Lamb take seriously. <clears throat> that says, older women in the church family should be having this effect on younger women in the church family, of pointing them the kind of godliness that God wants for them in their own family. Older women teach the younger women too. Well, it's that same concept. It's I'm passing on from one generation to another generation what God's shown me and what He's called us to. Same thing. I spent a little bit of time with the Gideons earlier this spring, (laughs) and guys, what a fun time. This group was mostly my age and up, grayer hair than yours truly has. And you know what gets them up in the morning? Passing out New Testaments. They're passing on the knowledge of God to future generations, almost always younger than them, every time they pass out a New Testament, and every time they get an opportunity to talk about the gospel. These guys are almost all older than me, and this is still one of the key focuses of their life. It's passing out New Testaments. It's giving the knowledge of God in Christ to another generation. Who do we have influence with? That's really it at the end of the day. Who do I have the ability to influence? Who can I tell my story to? Who can I say something uh, about God and Christ? Who can I say that to? And also, uh, is my life and testimony of a nature that successive generations would want what I share? What does my version of living out the faith look like? If somebody else sees that, is that something they want? What am I known for? What's my reputation? Do, do I have a life that others want to emulate? If I don't, my words are probably going to sound pretty hollow. They'd be counterproductive. Friends, old age is no time to rest to rest on past achievements, and it's no time to sit and look back and lament over disappointments. There's no expiration date on, in fact, Hebrews 10.24, Larry read this this morning, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. There's no, no expiration date on that. In Luke 2, Simeon was an old guy hanging out at the temple. And God had given him a promise, you're going to see the Messiah. Your eyes will see the Messiah that the nation's been waiting for, for at least a thousand years. And so he sees Jesus in the temple, and he says, Lord, I I can depart in peace now. And I love his language. He says, uh, my eyes have seen your salvation... Um, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. Now, that old man has been testifying to successive generations through Luke's gospel for 2,000 years. That Jesus is the light to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. That old man's been testifying for 2,000 years in Luke's gospel. The apostle John was likely at least in his 80s and think of this, he, when he writes, he records, I would better say, the 22 chapters we call the book of Revelation, at least in his 80s. But if you go to the beginning of Revelation, where is he when he gets this? Well, he's in legal banishment. Why is that? For testimony of Christ. This is an old dude who, if we said, oh, John, you sit down and take it easy. He's not doing it. He's old, especially old for his stage in history. And he's been arrested and banished for his testimony to Jesus Christ. And that's when he gets the last book of the Bible. It's recorded as the book of Revelation. Guys, you know, even think of this. Um, Churchill's a favorite of mine, Winston Churchill in England, for a number of reasons. Uh, But one is this. This guy was raised um, amongst fabulous wealth and privilege. Absolutely. And, And lots of downsides as well. And his career had some really stellar high points and some disastrous low points but when people think of Winston Churchill today it's almost always regarding World War II closer to the end of his life than anything before. Churchill's most productive years were not the beginning in his youth not in his middle years they were in his later years and you may find the same is true for you. This is Psalm 92 Speaking of the righteous, they will still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. I'm not a a shrinking browning tree. I'm a green vital tree. And I'm that for this reason, think of Psalm 71, to declare, to tell others that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there's no unrighteousness in him. God will give us fruitfulness in old age. Why? So that we can declare to others more about God and his praiseworthiness. And I'd say too briefly, if you're a young adult or child still at home, still in your formative years, and people are investing in your life, people older than you, generations that have preceded you, parents and perhaps grands as well, are you taking seriously the treasure they're giving you? Because it is a treasure. In fact, I think this verse was already read this morning as well, perhaps in Sunday school. 1 Timothy 6.20, 2 Timothy 1.14, Paul says to the younger generation, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. That if you're growing up in a Christian household, if you're growing up in a Christian church with the knowledge of God, it's a treasure. And guys, believe me, people in the world around you will try to take it away. In fact, well-meaning friends will try and take it away. It's a treasure. Hold on to it. Don't let go. Guard it. I I love this. Luke 2, 46. At 12 years old, Jesus is found by his parents in the temple. Now, what's he doing? Jesus is in the temple. He tells Mary and Joseph, well, you should have known I'd have to be about my father's things. This is his house. That's where I'm hanging out. But what's he doing? He's listening to. To the teachers and asking them questions. He's listening to the teachers and asking them questions. Now, he is God, but he's also man. And he still learns and grows. And at 12, Jesus knows these guys might be worth sitting down and hearing something from. Listening and asking questions. Uh, Close on this thought. Not only does the psalmist live in order to make God known to future generations, but he does so determined to praise God. Like Jehoshaphat and Judah in our opening, before any answer to his prayers is given, his constant refrain is praise to God. I'll just run through this quickly. My praise is continually of you. My mouth is filled with your praise all day. I'll praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation. I'll remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. I'll praise you with the harp, so I'll praise you verbally in conversation. I'll praise you with lyrics in songs. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. My tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long. Praising God was the standard motivation of his life from beginning to end. So when trials came up here in his life, even near the end of life, when resources had dwindled, he's doing exactly what he'd been doing all along. Guys, if trouble springs up in your life tomorrow, what will your response be? And here's the thing. What are you doing today? What is your life characterized today? That's the best indicator of what your life will be characterized by tomorrow. If we're not praising God, if we're not getting up thankful every day that Jesus saved us, when trouble comes, we're probably not going to be ready to respond as this psalmist did. I'm praising God before he's answered because I know him. And I've seen how he's interacted with me in the past. And I'm counting on them in the future as well. Um, last, this. If, if I say my life isn't characterized by praise and thanks, I want to just offer, this. these are three, you would have more, but these are three things we could ask ourselves. <clears throat> Am I in a time of suffering, oppression, depression? We've talked about this in other Psalms. All of us will probably go through times of life where we just can't raise our spiritual head and sing the glory hallelujah hymns and and if that's where we're at we've said uh, don't worry about it Uh, God will sustain us through those times we've said before don't stay away from church come don't worry if you're down come in late sit on the back row and savor the praise that's going on among the church family that's okay so if you say I'm in a time where I can't get there we say that's okay that's part of life and God loves you. you you didn't earn his love you're not losing it now But stay engaged, stay engaged so that you can be encouraged and God can help you through that. God will sustain us, that's one thing. Another thing is this, we may simply be failing to take into account the staggering reality of our salvation. And this really gets to an outlook of thankfulness every day. Guys, again, if you know who created you and you know who saved you and you know where you're going, no matter what happens in this life, and Christians all over the world are living horribly persecuted lives, they're going to heaven, and that's all that will count at the end of the day. We have enough to thank God for every day. God has loved me and saved me and forgiven me. And not only that, I'm going to go home today and I'm going to have something good to eat. I'll bet you will too. And we have cars, we have health care, we have homes, we have air conditioning. I mean, give me a break. Who Who here can't say thank you God every day? Have this sense of praise and thanksgiving. Count your blessings. You know, Name them one by one. Do it. It does change your outlook. Here's another one. I want to be careful to say this. We may be religious, but have no spiritual rebirth through faith in Christ. Kathy was reading Hebrews 6 the other day. Hebrews 6 is one of the key warning passages in that letter. Hebrews 6 describes people who go to church. And they say, man, that was a great service. And they say, man, that was a great message. It says they've tasted of the heavenly gift. They've experienced something of God in the worship of the church. And you know what? They're not saved. They fall away. The text is quite clear. I think it's verse 9. The writer says we're convinced of, of better things that accompany you and salvation. Guys, going to church doesn't save you. Jesus Christ alone saves us. We say this routinely, we're saved by God's grace alone, that's not based on what we've done. By faith alone, not our works, in Christ alone, that's salvation. If you look at your life and say, my life is not characterized by praise, not characterized by joy, not characterized by thanksgiving, one of the questions asked is, am I Christ's? And is Christ mine? We had a lovely young lady that was a regular member in our Uh, household more than the church but was part was uh, in services in this church too and she went away to college went went far away to college and she told us within a couple of months she said i got there and i heard a student i'm I'm in a student christian student meeting and i heard this guy and he said some of you think you're christians and you're not and she said i realized i wasn't I'd gone along, I was attending, I thought I was there. And in that moment she realized, I'm not a Christian, I've never been saved. She got saved. She got saved. So sometimes that's one of the reasons. um, Do we have a joy, a full joy, because we're trusting Christ and the Holy Spirit, because where joy is present, praise will follow. And guys, joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Even in challenging times of life, we can experience God's joy uh, Jesus is our good shepherd from birth. Think of the shepherd in the field, helping, helping the ewe deliver, birth the lamb. He's there to take care, right? To help with the delivery. He's there to help feed all along the way. And he's with that, those sheep all the way to the end of their life. And guys, Jesus is a good shepherd. And he's with us before we're out of the womb. And he's with us there through our birth. And he's with us there every stage of the way. And he's going to lead us safely all the way home. This is what that psalmist says. That's what we need to know as well. Well, if you would, Stan, we'll close by reading a text from Revelation 5. Maybe? There we go. Let's read that together. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying,